Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 24th. Today, a surprise upheaval in Venezuela's government. Lessons from the Covington confrontation. And who gets to decide how we talk about the weather? Just weeks after Nicolas Maduro was inaugurated for a second term as president, Venezuela may have a new leader. It is not a coup yet, but there's the possibility it may be leading up to a coup, or at least that's the hope of the U.S. officials and those of other countries who think that Maduro has to go. Carol Morello is a diplomatic correspondent for The Post. And she was keeping a close eye on Venezuela's government on Wednesday as protests began breaking out across the country. Juan Guaido is an opposition figure and president of the country's legislature, the National Assembly. And it was during those protests that Guaido declared himself the new leader of Venezuela. That declaration has backing from countries around the world, including leaders in the United States. Today, freedom broke out in Venezuela uh, with the recognition of a new interim president. The United States has been saying that the Maduro administration, the Maduro government, is a dictatorship. And we call on our partners and responsible AS member states to show leadership and pledge support for Venezuela's democratic transition and for interim President Guaido's pivotal role in that. They have wanted to push this, but at the same time, tactic, they are aware that the United States has sort of a checkered past in Latin America because of its intervention over many years in many different countries. And Maduro has been accusing the United States of plotting a coup against him. So people are gathering for this protest. President Nicolas Maduro is calling for counter-protesters, but they don't really show up. And then in the middle of this protest, this guy, this kind of young opposition leader, Juan Guaido, he just, like, stands up and says, I'm going to be the next president? Well, you make it sound as if it's not quite that spontaneous. It was not a spur of the moment. I think this is the moment. It was being carefully orchestrated and capitals around the world knew this was about to happen. They had been sending the message that until you say that you are ready to assume the mantle of becoming president in the interim until elections can be held, that, you know, we're going to hold back on how much support we give you. So he signaled through whatever channels he used, he signaled he was willing to do that. And within minutes, you know, the United States recognized him and a couple dozen other countries recognized him as well, including Canada. I I mean, I know that there is such immense dissatisfaction with Maduro, but like if no new election has happened yet, how does this guy just get to declare himself president? 
Well, there is a couple of clauses in the Venezuelan constitution that taken together say that when there is an illegitimate election or a person illegitimately claiming to be president, the president of the National Assembly has the right to become the president. So several clauses in the constitution, there appears to be legal backing for him to do this. And what do we know about Guaido and who he is and how he got to this point? We don't know a whole lot about him. He came a little bit out of, I don't want to say nowhere, but he's 35 years old. He doesn't have a super long political career. He's an engineer by training, but he's a relative newcomer. He's only 35 years old. So Maduro was reelected at some point last year, and then his official inauguration was just earlier this month. And I think to a lot of people, that seemed like an entrenchment of his power, right? Like he's in for another term. How did things change so quickly? Well, it is hard to overstate the degree in which Venezuela has been just collapsing as a state. Many, many countries have been saying they considered it a fraudulent election, that he cheated, that it was stolen, and that they don't consider him legitimate. So on January 10th, when he took office, there were many leaders in the country who did not come. It's not like it was anyone ever looked at it as a settled matter. How has Maduro responded to this declaration of a new president? And what is the likelihood that this is actually going to stick? I think we're going to have to wait another few days before we have a clearer idea. In his speech on Wednesday, he announced that he was severing diplomatic ties with the United States, that he was expelling all of the U.S. diplomats from the embassy there, and that they'd have 72 hours to get out. The State Department did not respond for a few hours, but when they did, they took a rather aggressive stance rather than saying, okay, we're preparing to get our people out. They said, we don't recognize him as the legitimate president. They referred to him as the former president. We recognize Juan Guaido as the legitimate president, and he has invited us to stay. They didn't come right out and say we're not leaving, but that's essentially what they meant. They called on the military to protect all U.S. citizens and to protect the embassy. And so we're basically going to see how Maduro responds to this. Is there a concern about the safety of the U.S. diplomats who are in Venezuela right now? Yes, and there's a concern about Guaido. There's a concern that this whole thing could spiral out of control. The deputy foreign minister of Russia today said the United States was fanning the flames and that there's a risk of a lot more bloodshed happening in Venezuela, more than has happened in the past. So there's concern for the safety of diplomats. It is not clear. The State Department has not talked at this point about whether diplomats will be allowed to leave if they so choose. There's concern this could erupt into a hostage situation. The ball is now in Maduro's court. The United States has said he doesn't have the authority to go ahead and kick out the U.S. diplomats. So he's going to have to decide how to finesse this. It will be very interesting to watch because on the one hand, if he lets them stay and doesn't do anything, he's going to look like he's essentially acquiescing and that he's very weak and that he doesn't have control. If he does send the military in and they go in to try and forcibly remove the U.S. diplomats, that will quickly escalate tensions between the countries. 
and there are some experts who fear that we are moving towards some sort of a military confrontation. Are you considering a military option for Venezuela? We're not considering anything, but all options are on the table. Does that mean you're considering military We're just, military? all options, always, all options are on the table. This does have the potential to spiral out of control very quickly. Carol Morello covers foreign policy and the State Department for The Post. In the hours after Guaido proclaimed his power in Venezuela, the country's defense minister said that the military will not be backing him. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin also expressed support for Maduro. By now, you've surely seen the video. It's a scene from Friday at the National Mall. A group of high school students, many of them in red Make America Great Again hats, are facing off against a Native American elder playing a drum. And if you saw this video on Twitter, where it first started to go viral, you probably saw a caption like this. This MAGA loser gleefully bothering a Native American protester at the Indigenous People's March. This is Abby Olheiser, who covers digital culture for The Post. And I think that video with that caption had millions of views before the account was taken down. I think that framing is probably what most people on Twitter who were sharing this saw first, or something very similar to it. From Twitter, the story almost immediately became national news. We quickly learned that the students wearing the MAGA hats came from Covington Catholic High School in Kentucky, and they were in town for the anti-abortion March for Life. And the Native American man on the drum was a well-known activist named Nathan Phillips. And so the first story that published relied on that set of facts, and it relied on Nathan Phillips's accounting of events to us. No one out there is singing, and I heard, I heard them saying, build that wall, build that wall. It relied on the statement from the diocese condemning the actions that they saw in the video. It didn't include some important context. One was that a live stream of these same moments existed. It was about two hours long and contained kind of a more wide shot of what happened and who approached who. And one really important thing it revealed is that there was a third group involved, the Hebrew Israelites, and they have a history of being very public and kind of confrontational in protests around D.C. As more details emerged, all of these separate narratives began to unfold. And how any one person understood exactly what had happened depended a lot on their political views. It became almost like a little video that summarized a lot of these deep unsettling feelings that people had about the direction the country's going in and the fact that it was young kids in MAGA hats and an older indigenous activist set up the perfect confrontation for those things to play out. The story was incredibly effective at dividing Americans. And it turns out that that was kind of the intent. Because one of the first tweets that really amplified the story didn't come from somebody who was there on the mall watching the whole scene unfold. One of the accounts with 
this video and a caption that got millions of views turned out to be an account that was misrepresenting who they were. The account claimed to be a teacher from California. It it was not that. The account was based in Brazil, I believe. And it was removed by Twitter for attempts to manipulate the public conversation. But I think in general, when you're talking about bots and trolling and the way in which they play a role in divisive conversations, I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is that the reason that these things work and what they're tapping into are things that Americans in different factions already want to share and believe. So yes, it seems that an account that was at the very least misrepresenting itself and you know at least one account possibly more helped to amplify this into the conversation. But once it got there, it was people and early mainstream reports and accounts with wide audiences picking up on this and sharing it with their audience that helped to make this become such a huge story so quickly. So what is the lesson to be learned here? Or is there even, is is there a lesson to be learned here? It's a tough question because I think people who spend a lot of time in this space see what happened with the Covington students and the indigenous activists as a particularly egregious example of a cycle that happens all the time online happening in a way that has like become this huge national conversation. I want to believe that there is something people can learn from this, but it seems like as the days play out on this story, people are becoming so entrenched in what they believe this says, that there's really no cross-pollination. I think from the perspective of a journalist who is in this space, you know, maybe there are lessons to learn about some of the challenges reporters face when they're trying to report on viral stories that are moving very quickly that already have kind of a meme and meaning attached to them as they become viral. You know, this certainly raises questions about how do you respond when a video like this that is evocative and viral and is speaking to these important issues that has become this flashpoint for people to talk about them, how do you then contribute to that as a journalist? Like, what is our role in – we know that we have a role in amplifying these, right? What is our role in what the reporting can bring to the table on these? The problem is, is that as this – illustrates you can only do what you have with the available facts. And the thing about a quickly developing viral story is that its meaning tends to travel faster than the full set of facts behind that situation. But also part of me is like, the problem is is that people are trying to find meaning in what was ultimately like a video of something that happened on the mall that is really complicated and difficult to parse and had a lot of different elements to it. And the desire to attach these huge themes or messages or statements about the state of our country and our world to this video, it feels like it short circuits any, like, meaningful understanding or any, like, nuance. Yeah, because the video means everything to everyone. And it means opposite things to different groups of people. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, I think this seems to be playing out as an example of how that probably isn't going to happen. And I don't think that would surprise anybody who has watched these cycles happen over and over before. I mean, for me, 
I guess like one of the few things I can say for certain about a story like this is that a similar situation is going to happen again soon. These moments of tension, these these videos that seem to speak to deep-seated feelings about what is wrong or right with this country, what is going on between people, are very quickly making the rounds and very quickly becoming national news stories. And they are always going to do that without every single fact available at that time. And there are always going to be these moments where these stories seem to mean completely different things to everyone. So it's sort of just like brace yourself for the next one. Abby Olheiser covers digital culture for The Post. And now, one more thing. AccuWeather, the private weather forecasting company, announced earlier this month that starting this year, it will categorize hurricanes in a different way from the National Weather Service. It's going to be using its own proprietary scale. Just like the National Hurricane Center system, it will categorize storms using the numbers 1 to 5. But unlike the government system, which only accounts for wind, AccuWeather's system will also factor in flooding rain, storm surge, and economic damage. Angela Fritz is a reporter and meteorologist at The Post. And she says that there's lots of concern in the meteorology community that having two sets of numbers will be confusing. Across virtually the entire meteorology community, everyone thinks that the scale that the National Hurricane Center uses is not good enough. We all agree. We all agree that something needs to change, but we all also seem to agree that there is no one scale that is going to work. Because when you think about it, hurricanes have a lot of different impacts, right? And we've seen this over the past couple of years very clearly. If you look at Hurricane Harvey, for example. We lived through hurricanes before. I never experienced anything like Hurricane Harvey. Hurricane Harvey's issue was inland flooding. The water is all the way up to the bumper on the 18-wheeler. You're going to get flooded out. Florence was a big storm surge and then inland flooding. With Maria, it was wind. 2,975 people died as a result of Hurricane Maria or impact from Hurricane Maria, according to the Puerto Rican government. Sometimes it is storm surge, like it was with Katrina. So there is no one number that is going to explain to one person in one place what this hurricane is going to do to them. What AccuWeather is saying, and I spoke with their CEO, Joel Myers, who's also the founder of AccuWeather, is, listen, what the National Weather Service is doing is fine. We are going to innovate. We've always innovated, and we're just trying to push the envelope, and we're going to do this. And the impression I'm getting from the weather community is, uh, I'm worried about this a little bit. 
it's a public safety issue. And it could be confusing because the National Hurricane Center is going to say, hey, this is Category 3. And then there will be some AccuWeather number out there saying, hey, this is a Category 5. And then what? So especially with an impending natural disaster, the last thing you want is confusion. We try and kind of rein that in as much as we can. I think it's already confusing enough. And based on what I heard in my reporting on this story, this might not be going the right direction. However, it also might kind of push things, you know, like this might be the catalyst that finally pushes the community over the edge so that they really put their effort into figuring out a solution for this problem. So we'll see. We're going to have a test this hurricane season. Angela Fritz is a meteorologist and science reporter for The Post. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. For folks who are curious about how we make our show every day, we put together a little Twitter thread with behind-the-scenes photos and information about a day in the life of our episode. You can find that at the top of my Twitter feed, at Martine Powers, or with the Post Reports hashtag. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.